This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Professor Maurice Stuckey, who explains the real cost of your free social network. You think about it, Facebook has a great model whereby they get you to put content on so that attracts your friends and families. And then they use your content basically to market to others, to market to you, ads and the like. And you're not really compensated for that. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. When Cambridge Analytica hit the headlines earlier this year, many of us realized that forever free Facebook actually comes at a cost. Experts caution we're paying with our data and that price may be too high. One of those experts is Professor Maurice Stuckey. He's a prolific legal scholar with a background in antitrust litigation for the US Department of Justice. In our first episode on competition law, Maurice told us about the dataopolis of GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. He explained why we should be worried about powerful data-driven companies and the challenges in policing these platforms. Now, we'll look at how much it costs us as individuals to access their free services. Maurice says they extract significant wealth from us in several ways. So, what are regulators doing and will their actions make much of a difference? One thing's for sure, the world's changed a lot since Frank Sinatra extolled the virtues of free. And love can come to everyone Cause the best things in life are free So Maurice, do we as consumers really value our data and our privacy? There are some who don't care about their privacy. But based on the evidence, the survey evidence and the like, most people have this resignation or hopelessness is that they feel that there's not much they can do to control their privacy, but they are concerned about their privacy. You're essentially saying that they're trading off the allure and the convenience of what the platforms offer for their privacy and they feel like that's a trade-off they effectively have to make. They have no other option. Yeah, I think this is like the German Bundeskartellamt in their investigation of Facebook put it well. That, first of all, consumers don't really know because the privacy policies are often opaque. We don't know necessarily how much data is being collected about us, who has this data, and what they're using this data for. If we were to say that, you know, revealed preferences, that consumers are trading off the use of the product for their data, that would assume two things. Number one, it would assume that we would know what we're getting in exchange and what we're giving up. We would know the value of our data, how it's being used, by whom it's being used, for what purposes. The second key criteria is even if we knew all of that, we would have a competitive alternative that we would then say, you know what, this is a value equation, I understand it, I could go with MySpace, but I elect to go with Facebook. Then we could then say that consumers are making effectively that trade-off. 
But here, first of all, consumers are largely in the dark about how their data is being used. And second, even if they were told that, what's their option? You basically have to click to agree to get onto Facebook. You can't negotiate with Facebook. So there's the other theme that came out through the um, congressional hearings is that this notice and consent regime, that's basically where when you go sign on to Facebook, they give you several pages of fine print And then you have to scroll down and click, I agree, in order to get onto the service. That no one reads it. It's not worded in in a way that informs individuals. And even if it were to inform you, as the Bundeskartellamt says, you don't really have any competitive alternative. That if you want to get onto the social network, basically the only option you have today is Facebook. Certainly in Europe and more recently in Australia, regulators are getting on this privacy bandwagon. There's the general data protection regulation that's been introduced in the EU, and Australia is about to legislate a consumer right to data, a data portability reform. Do you think these types of regulatory responses is going to have any impact on the platform business model? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a great experiment to see exactly how this will play out and whether or not it creates opportunities for other firms to enter into the field. So data portability could be potentially a great mechanism because it could lower my my switching costs. So now if I want to go to Facebook, I could also take all of my data with me to a um, alternative. There are some areas though where data portability will not necessarily work. And that would be like mapping apps, for example, where it's not really that I can transport the data of where I went for the last month to another mapping app. What that mapping navigation app needs is where I am currently. So if I'm still using Google Maps, the fact that I could port to, let's say, MapQuest is not going to help me because MapQuest needs to know where I am currently. So that still needs to be worked out. So there might be some areas where it may not have as significant an impact. And then the other thing is, it'll be interesting to see to what extent that this will really make a dent on the power of these platforms. Because they're all gearing up, like Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon are all gearing up for the GDPR in Europe. And they're also going to gear up in Australia. So it doesn't suggest that these privacy regulations are too onerous that they have to withdraw from that market. Now, that can mean one or two things. That could mean that it won't necessarily affect their business model and they can continue doing business. Or it could mean that it could actually increase, in some ways, regulatory barriers and make it harder for someone to come into the market. Some are arguing that position. I just don't know. I'm interested to see how this actually will play out in the next year or so. Oh, I don't know about you, but I've had an onslaught in my email inbox of changes to privacy policies by platforms of which I'm a consumer. I've got to confess though, Maurice, I haven't read any of them, so I'm probably your typically privacy inert consumer. Let's <laughs> change tack though. The other point you make is that consumers aren't just paying with their data, they're actually working for free because they're providing much of the content 
that is disseminated on these platforms. Is that a problem for consumers if they're willing volunteers? Or is it more of a problem for the professional content creators, photographers, authors, musicians, writers, whose creative content is being scraped by the platforms? Right. So there are really two distinct problems there. The one is that for the photographers and the like, they may rely on traffic to their website in order to generate revenue or in order to generate enough money to engage in their trade. And here, the powerful platform can just simply take, like scrape their content, put it on their own platform and divert traffic away to the artist's platform. And so depriving them revenue. And you also hear that complaint about newspapers too, is that if they disagree with the platform, then there's going to be less traffic to that newspaper. And as a result, the newspaper's uh, revenues will decline. A second concern is when the platform vertically integrates and now basically takes over that function. Like Amazon now is in the publishing business. And so it competes with the publishers that are on its platform. And as a result, the incentives change. And we've seen this also with the Google uh, shopping cases, that once these platforms vertically integrate, that they move upstream and start competing with those that are on their platform, then they look at their competitors. Now they kind of have like a, a frenemy relationship. They're friends with these companies, but they're competing with them. And that gives them then incentives to favor their own products and services and disadvantage. So like anyone that exists on this platform has to be concerned if the platform itself starts competing against them. And once the platform starts competing against them, the terms can be really onerous. So I, I thought it was fascinating that with Amazon, for those that publish with Amazon, they used to get paid whenever their book was like downloaded. And you pay the price you know, on Amazon, on Kindle for that product. But what Amazon started doing was they started paying the authors who were publishing through Amazon by the number of pages that the reader actually read of that book. So if you only read half the book, then the author would get half the royalties, basically. And that's like another power, because with the power of data, they can squeeze then anyone that exists on this platform. They have like almost what's like this buyer power, monopsony power. And then finally, they also have this power with Facebook and YouTube and the like, where they get us competing against one another for likes, for social recognition. And we're putting all this content on, but we're basically working for free and we're not being compensated. And you think about it, Facebook has a great model whereby they get you to put content on so that attracts your friends and families. And then they use your content basically to market to others, to market to you, ads and the like. So they're very much concerned about maintaining your engagement with that platform by providing information for free to attract others to that platform. And you're not really compensated for that. I think what you've said very much reflects the difficulty that some have with trying to pin down just what platforms are and how they might evolve. Some are concerned that there's going to be an inexorable spread of platform power across sectors and markets and ultimately 
the whole economy. Yeah, I think, I mean, one thing is we can look at where we are now and where we're likely going. And one thing is to see where are now GAFA or our dataopolies now going to compete? What is like the next space? And Ariel Izraki and I have written about these digital personal assistants. And that's really the evolution that we went from the PC world to the smartphone world to now having these devices in your home like Alexa. And so the themes that we've talked about are all manifest themselves with these digital personal assistants. You're going to have multiple network effects, particularly as the digital assistants that have more skills, more smart appliances connected to them are going to then attract more users. And so you see this race now, particularly between Amazon and Google over trying to attract manufacturers to come up with applications for their digital assistant or to build skills for the digital assistants. Then you have then this operating system with the digital assistant that's going to control all of these smart appliances in your home. And far more data is going to be collected about us. So that raises then privacy issues. But it also then raises then you're going to have a platform that's now going to be even more connected in our lives. That's going to track you when you're driving your automated car. That's going to track you in your home. It's going to attract you when you're on a run with your uh, Fitbit. It's going to then collect even more data. And so what then are the privacy implications? And what are the implications on upstream providers who are now trying to access you because they have to go through this digital assistant? So if you think the search engine now has power, just imagine now the digital assistant that's going to then say to you, oh, here's a recommendation for you. You're not even going to bother searching on Google. You're just going to rely then on your Google Assistant or uh, Alexa. So that's going to give them considerable gateway power for the upstream. And you now have their ability, the social and democratic implications. You're going to have now this entity that's going to be recommending television shows for you, news articles, books, and the like, they're going to have tremendous power to influence then our thoughts, our conversations, and the like. Gee, you paint a really scary picture, Maurice. And clearly, governments and regulators in some parts of the world are onto these concerns. In Europe, there's been a plethora of investigations into digital platforms and their conduct. But in the US, the antitrust agencies have seemed slower to react. What would you ascribe that apparent divergence in approach between the U.S. and the European policymakers to? Well, here, here I'm actually going to be optimistic. When we started out with big data and competition policy, we were tackling some of the common myths that we heard about big data. And one thing that was interesting in writing that book, Alan and I, is the evolution in thinking among some of the uh, policymakers, particularly in the UK, Germany, and the EU. They were moving at remarkable speed. So by the time we finished the book, there was already a sea change in just that privacy at times 
can be an antitrust issue. That that itself was no longer a radical thought. And in fact, then when you look then after the book came out with Microsoft and LinkedIn, privacy actually then played a role in the enforcement decision. So I would say that with the U.S., you're starting to see one of the remarkable things from the congressional hearing was that you were hearing concerns both on the right and the left. And you have libertarians and more government intervention types, both of them raising concerns about the power that these platforms have. The other thing was that there was this emerging consensus that if you guys are adapting to the GDPR, and it doesn't seem to really halt your ability to provide these products, why can't Americans then benefit from similar type of privacy regulations? So you were starting to see from conservatives and liberals questions about a more unified privacy policy. Add to that with the midterm elections that we're having, I would say that in the United States, you could see a similar evolution within the next two to three years, that this is clearly on the radar. It's clearly on the minds of legislators. Now it's getting the political will to get something done. So I think here, just like these markets at times can develop quickly, so too can the policymakers when there's the political will. Are you concerned that they might act reactively or even rashly and that the regulation that's introduced might have unintended consequences? There's always that concern. But one thing I would say is that over the last 35 years, we've been beaten over the head about false positives. That, oh, if our antitrust regulations are too severe, we're going to be harming consumers. We're going to be hurting consumer welfare. So we've had a relatively light touch. We really haven't focused on false negatives. What are the costs if we don't have active antitrust enforcement? And I think the reality today is that we put far too much emphasis on false positives and far less emphasis on false negatives. Even when you go back to like someone like Hayek, and you look at his work, he recognized that active antitrust enforcement was an effective and necessary precondition for a market economy. You need strong antitrust enforcement. And I would say then, yes, we have to ensure that these regulations are well-crafted. We also have to see, you know, constantly monitor to see how effective they are. But let's not raise that familiar rallying cry of false positives and do nothing because we see then what that will result. Maurice, you've given us a lot to think about. I'd like to round up by asking you whether there's a particular area or two or three areas where you would strenuously advocate for greater scrutiny and enforcement by competition authorities. Right. So I would say that... Let me take a step back here. So one thing is, is that competition officials can't do it alone. The first thing they need to do is work with the privacy officials and the consumer protection officials to figure out what are some of the necessary conditions for robust privacy competition. And that might be something like 
having regulations like the GDPR or the laws in Australia that can make privacy competition more robust. And that might be something for the legislature or the privacy officials or the consumer protection officials. So one thing is, is that they have to coordinate uh, with the others. What are the ex-ante you know, sort of mechanisms to promote privacy competition? Then for things that the competition official can do, first would be more active merger enforcement and to develop tools to assess how these mergers might affect both upstream suppliers and downstream consumers in ways that don't necessarily affect price. And that could be privacy. So maybe to develop tools to assess a small but significant non-transitory decrease in quality, which would be privacy protection. So those would be then more robust merger enforcement. That would be number one. Number two would be abuse of dominance monopolization in the U.S. The DOJ has brought only one case against a monopoly since 2000 going forward. Only one monopolization case. Now, that's just inexcusable. There, there's no reason why enforcement has lagged to such a degree. And it's not just the number of cases that are brought in court, the number of investigations that have opened have also significantly dropped. So the second thing would be more Section 2 enforcement under the Sherman Act against these dataopolies for their abusive tactics. And we already see what the Europeans are doing. We should have investigations as well opened up in the U.S. to investigate these practices. The FTC investigated Google for over a year on uh, abusive uh, tactics, including scraping, including search bias, and the like. And they decided to close the investigation. FTC commissioners decided to close the investigation without bringing any action against Google. They asked for just some voluntary commitments, which was highly unusual. We didn't know exactly what was the, the rationale But it seemed from the press release that there wasn't any basis for bringing an investigation. Later, it came out that the staff actually recommended bringing a case against Google. And the report, you only got every other page. So you had to, you know, with the footnotes, you had to sort of piece it together. But there was significant concerns about several practices of Google and how that could be retarding innovation and could be hurting consumers, such as scraping. So I I would say the second area to focus on is monopolization. And then the third area would be when you have highly concentrated industries that we have today, and you have the shift to pricing algorithms, I think we do need to take into account the increase of tacit collusion in many of these industries that are highly concentrated. So that would be a third area of inquiry is is the algorithmic collusion. Well, Maurice has mapped out a broad and challenging agenda for regulators. It's clear they have some catching up to do. And the first challenge appears to be simply understanding what dataopolies are and how they operate. 
You can find links to Maurice's articles and books in the show notes. Next time on Competition Law, Jeffrey Manny, Executive Director of the International Centre for Law and Economics, and someone with a very different take for Maurice. Until then, you can find our blogs, resources and links at competitionlore.com. I'm tweeting at BW, and please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com. I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. See you next time.